testing. One, two, three, four. <coughs> this is Samantha Belmont, one third owner of the Greater Los Angeles Basin, speaking. You guys? I like it spooky. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast. I'm Jason. And I'm Clint. And today, we are going to do something unprecedented. We're going to do something special, something monumental, where uh, for the first time on this show, we are going to do a bonus episode with some fun facts about a movie that we recently covered, Night of the Comet. I'll be taking requests from all you teenage comet zombies on the hit line. That's 555-4487. You get it? 555-HIT. This will be fun. This is a good idea. Stuff that we didn't really know. I know we were kind of all busy around that time. So, yeah, let's touch back with it. Movie was fun. So, it deserves a second episode, definitely. Yeah, I thought so too. I mean, if you go back and listen to the Night of the Comet episode, we all rated it, you know, above average. I think it's a, a movie that we've all seen and we'll watch again. And yeah, I didn't get a chance to research it as much as I normally do for an episode. Uh, I was busy with Motor City Nightmares. In fact, if you go back and listen to the Night of the Comet episode, I sounded a little loopy there. I was just walked in the door after a busy three-day weekend so we were promoting the episode being launched and i was looking up trying to find what the name of the radio station was in night of the comet where the girls went after they realized that the uh, everybody in the world had turned to dust and uh while i was trying to find the name of the radio station i came across just a plethora of fun facts and trivia and a lot of cool industry tie-ins that uh, i didn't know existed so cool i'm excited to learn some more stuff, you know, like I've noticed from doing this podcast is I still miss stuff in movies, even though I try to watch it a little bit more diligently, but yeah, I'm ready for some fun facts. I want to hear it. Well, and you guys both know I'm neurotic when it comes to this stuff. I'll get a hold of you guys after we record and I'll go, Oh my God, I, I think the episode's going to suck. And I wanted to say this and I forgot to say that. And we should have mentioned this. And you know, Brian's always like, well, you shut up. It's fine. Don't worry about it. The episode's going to be good. You know. And uh, speaking of Brian, th this whole concept of this bonus episode, I kind of just hit me a few days ago. And so I sprung it on the boys here and uh, Brian already had prior engagements that he had to be to. So Brian will not be joining us with his Southern draw this bonus episode. So you're just going to have to deal with with myself and Jason, but we probably won't hear any mention of Joe Bob. So ding. Oh, damn it. I did it, didn't I? <laughs> So I got a list here and uh, hopefully some of this stuff you guys learn from, you know, learn something new. Um, you know, some diehard fans probably already know some of this stuff, but uh, we're going to get into it. So again, when I was researching to find the name of the radio station, which I never found, I guess they never mentioned the name of the radio station. You know, um, I came across this info and I'm just kind of going to go down my list here and might bounce around a little bit. But I found out that when writing the script, the director, Tom, how do you say his name there? Looks like Eber Eberhart. Eberhart, yeah, okay. He wanted to merge the idea of strong female protagonists with his love of post-apocalyptic -apocaly films set in empty cities, which I love too. 
we had an episode a while back where we were asked what subgenre we are drawn to or is our favorite subgenre. You remember that, Jason? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I answered slashers, which was true. But I remember after I said that, I was like, you know, I do kind of anytime there's like a like Tom, the director of Night of the Comet said an empty city post apocalyptic. I mean, that's just fantasy land where you can run around the mall or the whole city is yours. You know, uh, for the women, he was inspired by Ginger Rogers and further inspiration came from real life teenage girls who he met while filming PBS specials. I didn't know he did PBS specials. Uh, And without telling the girls the details about the script's premise, he asked them to describe how they would react in an apocalyptic event. The girls saw the scenario as an exciting adventure and only saw a downside to the experience when he brought up the fact of dating. Uh, Then he used their answers and wrote the script to be the light-hardened, adventuresome Night of the Comet. Pretty interesting. So it just kind of shows you what the directors go through when they're writing and putting together these movies, you know, the steps that they'll take. Yeah. And um, I'm sure this isn't like uh, the first time that this approach has been taken. It's almost kind of like a focus group. You see that when films are made and then they show the films and to small focus groups to see if they need changes. Mm -hmm. Um, I've obviously never written or been involved in something of the magnitude of a feature like Night of the Comet, but I've never done anything like that. And I've never heard of directors doing that. So it's a unique approach. I think he went to what he thought his audience was going to be and be like, tell me what you think about this. And then took their ideas. Yeah. I'm, I would be a total outsider too, when it comes to directing a movie, I feel like I would just kind of go into it and be like, all right, let's roll. Like, Like just cold without any preparation. And, but it just, it, it shows like what you have to go through just to be prepared. So of course the movie doesn't start day one. It started a long time ago when, you know, writing the scripts, development, you know, pre-development, all that stuff. And it it would be kind of cool to follow a director around and kind of see what they do. But uh, I bet it's a ton behind the scenes, of course. It, it has to be. And the, the little bit of minute experience that I've had in, in doing stuff like that. Yeah, it, it could be monumental. And that's if you remember back when we covered that, we did the Severn double feature episode and we were talking about director Joe D'Amata. I was like, that blows my mind because he had I forget what the number was now, but it was, you know, hundreds and thousands or whatever of directing credits in his lifetime. And I'm like, wow, how did this guy have the time to do all that? Well, I bet once they get going, though, once they've done it a few times, they're not rookies anymore. It gets a little bit easier, kind of like everybody's job out there. You know, Uh, you do it a couple times and you're a pro at it. So that's true, man. My day job, people are like, oh, God, how do you how do you do that? Like, man, I'm just a train monkey. I've been doing this for 23 (laughs) years. I could do it in my sleep. And and you can, too, if you're dumb enough to stay around here 23 years like I did. So I also found out that um, Heather Langenkamp, who you all know as Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street, that she auditioned for the role of Samantha Belmont. She was the number one choice uh, on the casting, but ultimately the part went to Kelly Maroney. Hmm. So this Night of the Comet, when this was 1984, right? Yes. And Nightmare on Elm Street was 84. So I kind of wonder what went into that. Was she just Kelly Maroney chosen over her? Or did Heather Langenkamp decide Nightmare was the better choice? I kind of wonder how that would have played out. I'm, I'm curious, too. You know, when I started researching these fun facts and everything, that was all that was stated. So it didn't break down the particulars. Mm-hmm. But it made me think of, we talked in a prior episode. No, it was actually uh, before I became a full-time podcaster on this show, I was a guest on when we covered The Burning. I think it was episode 13 or 14 or something like that. And uh, we were talking about all of these movies 
came out in 1981, you know, the burning and it was evil dead and Friday the 13th part two. Mm-hmm. And, um, they were all had similarities and we had discussed, I wonder if someone was stealing ideas from each other, but I'm kind of leaning towards the fun facts I found here about night of the comet is it's just the same circle of people. These were all movies that came out around the same time. So nightmare on Elm street and night of the comet came out around the same time. And as big as the horror community and the horror film community is, it's actually relatively small. Mm-hmm. So you have all these people that are applying for the same roles and talking about the movies that they're, you know, auditioning for at dinners and their friends. The makeup artist for Night of the Comet, David B. Miller, he wound up doing the makeup of or some prosthetic parts for Freddy Krueger in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 1. He showed Wes Craven. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I did this uh, zombie cop makeup in Night of the Comet. And Wes saw that picture and said, you know, this is really close to what I want Freddy to look like. Hmm. So, again, they're all in the same circle and they all influence each other. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then when it comes to the actors, you all have that actor. You're watching a movie and you see somebody and they're like, what do I know them from? Mm -hmm. And tons of the same actors have little part roles in a lot of the same or a lot of the different movies, but with the, you know, same directors, same other cast. Or there's always little stuff. Like one of the facts that I came across was uh, during the crowd scenes in the beginning of Night of the Comet, there's a brief shot of LL Cool J on a microphone. Is there? Which I probably saw it. Yeah, I probably saw it and just didn't, it didn't click with me, you know. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and look at that again. What's the 1984? So, I mean, that was when he was still heavy into his music career and long before he, he jumped into films. You know, hey, who knows? Uh, one of the reasons I think this bonus episode is important is because I have found out that Night of the Comet has actually like influenced or touched or somehow through six degrees of separation loosely been a part of a lot of modern pop culture. Like this, you know, who knows? Hell, maybe LL Cool J, like. This, he was in this in this brief little role, and he was like, you know what? I want to get in the film industry, and, and an agent saw him, and then years later, he was in a ton of movies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we talked about um, we talked about how Heather Langenkamp auditioned for the role of Samantha. I had also read that Kelly Maroney, who played Samantha, uh, that she actually auditioned for Catherine Mary Stewart's role of Regina. You know, she didn't get the role and, and wound up as Samantha, but I thought that was interesting because I can't picture her as Regina Mm-mm. and it's because I know her as Samantha. Yeah, I know a lot of their parents will come into it, but, you know, being the typical like blonde, not trying to stereotype anybody, but like, oh, the blonde cheerleader type, you know, so it, it just seems more fitting for her to play that role. But hey, that's not bad, though. If you go in auditioning for one role, you don't get that one, but you get, you know, the close second right there. You get the next best role, arguably, arguably best role. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's one thing that I didn't even research. I wanted to mention uh, when we covered Night of the Comet was um, if you go back and watch the movie, one of the things that I really enjoyed about those two characters, about Catherine Mary Stewart's Regina character and about Kelly Maroney's Samantha characters, they're supposed to be sisters. And they really play well off each other. I don't think there really was a lead and a supporting. You know what I mean? They both served equal purpose. I thought they did a great job of just existing together. I I bought that they were sisters, even though mm-hmm. they didn't visually look like sisters. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, I couldn't visually, I couldn't picture Regina 
being Samantha. And I think part of that is it's burned in my brain because I found that the production designer of Night of the Comet, John Mudo, he used what he described as a comic book sensibility for the film's overall look. So kind of like um, to a degree when they shot Dick Tracy. Have you ever seen Dick Tracy? Yeah, yeah. All the yellows were the same. All the reds were the same. And certain colors were designated for villains and heroes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. John Mudo, the production designer, did the same thing. You know, like he had specific colors, like the bad guys were always in blues and grays. The sisters were in brighter colors. But Regina's colors were always a little bit deeper than Samantha's to reflect that she was a little more intellectual, a little more mature, the older sister who's kind of making the decisions, you know, and, and Samantha was kind of like the wackier, younger sister. Are they kind of implying, you know, brighter colors or for the, you know, the younger kids type thing? Kind of the feeling I get for it. I think so. I mean, when I was a kid, of course, you know, when I actually had any kind of, I don't know, fashion sensibility, which it was horrible. But, you know, in the 90s, when, when we were in high school, that's when you had cross colors and and uh, was it Jenko? So we had like jeans. Lime, lime green jeans and purple jeans. And we were walking Skittles, man, you know. <laughs> And then I, uh, you know, got older, you know, cut my hair and get a job. And all of a sudden I'm wearing browns and grays and blues and blacks. And now I'm a kid again with this podcast and with the t-shirt. So people actually comment on the, the Ink Mirrors t-shirt display at conventions. They're like, I love that your shirts aren't all black. They're colorful. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm bringing out the kid and everybody. Got a nice selection. Yep. And also, oh, thank you. yeah. Also, if you look at like the skies, like the tones of the comic book cells, you know, how the sky was always, it seemed darker or a solid color and how the sky was always orangish brown in this movie. You know, if you take a snapshot of the movie, I, I would totally buy, you know, it was influenced by, you know, comic book cells. You mean how the Night of the Comet had that kind of red haze? The haze, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, Exactly. Yeah, and then um, of course, like we talked about when we discussed it in the in the full episode at the end of the movie, you know, they had overcome evil. You know, they had defeated the the scientists and the 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 half exposed comet zombies. The rain came out and washed all that red haze and red dust away, and everything was bright and cheerful. And yeah, so uh, again, John Mudo, the production designer, yeah, he he had had that bleed over not just from wardrobe and everything, but from um from the sets also. Speaking of half-exposed comet zombie monsters. The working title of Night of the Comet was Teenage Mutant Comet Zombies, which I don't know if you remember, but when they first get to the radio station and uh, Samantha character grabs the microphone and she's being a radio DJ and she says that line. She says, all right, all you, uh, all you Teenage Mutant Comet Zombies. Oh, <laughs> no, I didn't catch that. But yeah, I, I'm glad they went with something different. <laughs> Just... That, that gives it the more, you know, the B rating. If they would have named it something like that, that's kind of the vibe I get, which to some people it might be a B movie. But when I hear that, I think of, uh, you know, 1950s sci-fi horror, like, yeah. uh, which is this was kind of a sci-fi horror. But yeah, the whole I was a teenage zombie or, you know, the the. <laughs> big titles with 17 different words explaining one little thing and mm -hmm. you know kind of going back to we talked about how this lived in the same time as when the original nightmare on elm street uh, came out night of the common actually premiered in theaters the same night as nightmare on elm street oh shit no kidding Obviously, Nightmare on Elm Street, I think, um, arguably became a bigger hit than Night of the Comet. But you got to wonder if they opened on different days or in different months, 
if Night of the Comet, which had a, a pretty good financial run, but you got to wonder if it would have had more popularity and been seen less as a B movie. Yeah. Just hearing that though, you know, as a horror fan, you know, gives me the tingles. Like on that night, that weekend, you have a choice of these two amazing movies to go see back in the 80s. I mean, we of course were six, so we probably didn't go to either of them. Right. <laughs> and I yeah. definitely don't remember, but. Nowadays, you know, movies kind of play off each other. They push back their release dates because like, oh, this movie's coming out this day. Let's not compete with that. Let's compete or let's choose another week. But that would be amazing to just have that choice and or make it a Saturday and be like, oh, I'm going to go see both of them. Mm -hmm. And then shit, you're talking to your your friends for a week about these two movies you saw. We've talked about that before, about how there's rarely any more any big in theater experiences and a lot of that's just the day and age and the technology you know you can go to the the theater and watch black phone or you can wait a week and pay less money and if you're going to buy out you know 50 dollars popcorn and stuff <laughs> and just watch it from the comfort of your home yeah we're kind of spoiled now everything kind of comes to digital uh quicker so if you don't go see the movie you know just wait a month and you'll you'll be watching it on your own couch which is kind of nice but I think ever since COVID hit, it kind of just, of course, it ruined, maybe not ruined, but it, it, it hurt the movie industry to where um, they couldn't, you can't have like the big mainstream premiere. When you go to, I don't know, I don't know the last movie I went to on opening night where there was a huge line, but of course it was pre-COVID, the last one, maybe Halloween 2018. That was pretty big, but I don't know anymore. It just kind of seems tame. It does. Even that one. We've talked about that before. And the last packed movie theater that I can remember being in was when the Blair Witch Project came out. I think it was in 1999 and I went opening night. That was the last rowdy, invested in the film, packed movie house experience I've had in forever. And you go to some and there's, you know, like when I went and saw Frozen when my kids were younger, you know, it was a full theater. But I mean, there's some hit or miss. But yeah, that, that big experience is gone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Unless you go to like a Star Wars or something. No, I remember I, I even went to see a Rogue One. Do you remember Rogue One? Mm -hmm. And um, that was, I went opening week and I think I went on a Sunday. So I guess it's kind of hard to say it wasn't like a Friday night or Thursday night opening, but still it was opening weekend and there was, I don't know, 20 people in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also plays into like the areas that we live, you know, we don't live in a big New York, Chicago, Los Angeles area, mm -hmm. even other events that go on around here. It's like, you don't have to go and be in line crazy early just to get a good seat. Mm -hmm. You just kind of show up whenever. And you know, I'm I'm thankful of that because I, I don't want to compete with other people just to go watch a stupid movie. No, I mean, I don't have agoraphobia or anything, but I'm not a fan of big crowds either. And I think it's just because I do. I live in a more village area, more rural area. So I've become very accustomed to not heavy traffic, like fucking Chicago traffic when we went to flashback. Oh, my God, I hated that. Yeah, you, you get used to uh, to life being easy. Mm hmm. You know, talking about flashback, and I'm kind of jumping around how I wrote these facts out here, but as you all know by now, because we've been talking a lot about Night of the Comet from when we went to flashback and from the Night of the Comet episode and uh, the bonus episode of our time spent in that flashback discussing why we have no freaking money <laughs> is, uh, is out now. But so while we were there, we met the cast of Night of the Comet. Catherine Mary Stewart was there. Kelly Maroney was there. Ivan E. Roth, who played Willie, was there. And um, again, as you know by now that 
we talked them into, we blackmailed them. Okay, we didn't blackmail them, but we uh, we asked them, and they were nice enough to record the opening for our show when we covered Enter the Comet. So Ivan and I hit it off. I enjoyed talking with him. We talked a few different times, and he told me some cool stories about the making of Night of the Comet, and one of them was apparently the way his Willie character, who was the, the lead evil stock boy there, his character was written to really talk like this and have this slow, low, gravelly voice, almost like he was drying out. And he said that while they were recording, you know, again, this movie only had like a $700,000 budget. So I had limited sound and limited time to be in limited spaces. Mm -hmm. And I forget, but the, the combination of everything, the audio engineers weren't able, the sound design people weren't able to really pick up what he was saying. They're like, I've, we, we can't hear you. You need to do something else. And he says, you know, he's, I can, he kind of cocked his head and he goes, hold on a second. And he went into another room to try to like real quick kind of ad lib practice. And he had this idea for this evil game show host in his head. And he basically went into the other room with I don't know, a production assistant, the director's assistant, somebody from the production of the film. I can't remember who. And he ad-libbed this whole line set. Like he came up with the um, where he's doing the Russian roulette with the girls. And he's like, ooh, scary noises. And just all of that stuff. The whole I'm not crazy. I don't give a fuck. My favorite line. He came up with all of that. And the production assistant who was with him was like that's fantastic let's go tell the director and they went ahead and, and told tom everhart there and he loved it he said go with it so basically ivan roth created willie's character on the fly on right there in production mm -hmm. that's pretty cool yeah that's awesome so he not only plays the character he can fully like embody the character give a piece of what his idea to the character which makes it makes it all the more better Oh, it does, and it gives it some authenticity, and I don't know, I since I'm such a fan of, of his character uh, in that film, I don't know, maybe I, I see it more than others, but you can see it. You can hear it. It's just very authentic. It's not copied. I don't remember hearing anything else like that in another film. That is his. He owns that. Yeah, yeah. You were fangirling just a little bit at the convention, so. Oh, well, you know. I was so nervous because again, I made I made each character their own specific character T-shirt. I'm nervous because you know they could be like, "This is stupid, get out of here." <laughs> so I always print uh, starting in medium. Rarely do I do smalls because I don't get a big demand for smalls. And to me, a small is like a very very petite woman or a young child. And so I go over to Catherine Mary Stewart and I'm like, "Hey, you know, I, I made this T-shirt for you, and I, I'm going to bring some over, but..." What size do you wear? And she goes, oh, it's small. And I'm like, oh, you know. So, and then I go over to Kelly Maroney and the same thing. She's like, I usually wear an extra small or a small. And I'm going, oh. And I just, so in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And then, uh, you know, I get over to Ivan and uh, thankfully he wanted a size that I made. But it, he was so receptive and I couldn't help but fanboy out, fangirl out, fan geek out because... Mm -hmm. He was genuinely um, humbled, you know, and thankful and like wore the shirt and was like, oh, I'll be at your podcast and all this stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I was I was fan geeking out when one of your favorite characters likes what you do and you guys click. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. And that's what's great about the horror genre. These actors who, you know, aren't in the big mainstream, they do have big fans still. It's so I mean, they, they truly appreciate that, which shows why they come out to these conventions like you just gave us that story. That's that's a great story just because you were able to meet him, talk to him, 
where normally you wouldn't be able to unless you maybe ran into him in the street and knew who he was, but right. Well, and I dare say as cool as it was for me, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it was probably cool for him as well as far as acceptance, because that was Ivan's first con appearance ever. So you got to think to a degree, he had to have been thinking in his mind, okay, I played this small part in this early 80s movie. Are are people going to know who I am? Is there still a fan base? Am I wasting my time? Am I going to deal with rejection? And he's got... Little old me running up going, I love your shirt or your show and your character. And here's his T-shirt and sign all this stuff for me. And so uh, I'm sure it was, you know, validation um, for him as well. And his table was busy all weekend. So, I mean, obviously it wasn't just me. There was a lot of people there who connected with that character. And that gives him the motivation to keep going to these cons, you know, meeting these fans. Yeah. And and hopefully, um, hopefully for all three of the characters, I know Kelly Maroney is still fairly active in the, the film industry, but hopefully for all three of them, they go to these conventions and can create buzz for themselves and get some roles in some newer films, whether it be an indie film or whether it be a a big budget blockbuster. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's a great segue. Speaking of big budget blockbusters, I read that Kelly Maroney's character of Samantha Belmont was a huge influence on Joss is it Whedon or Wedden? Whedon. I think it's Whedon. Whedon, yeah. yep. Um, when he created um, Buffy Summers of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, I can't really say too much into that because I, I never watched Buffy. Uh, I know the character, but yeah, I don't know much about it. I watched the first film, you know, and yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a lighthearted teenage vampire horror comedy classic. Uh, But still, you can't deny that, like, you knew what I was talking about, even if you hadn't seen the film. So Buffy, I mean, it was it was really popular when it came out. Um, You know, it spawned TV, um, what TV series also. So it was fairly mainstream. And so Night of the Comet, that Kelly Maroney's character influenced that heavily. And it was just so cool because there's a lot of stuff I didn't write down. But if, if you guys ever want to just search up Night of the Comet trivia or fun facts, there is a freaking list, like probably two pages long, of television shows or movies from then until now that reference Night of the Comet or that you can see that it's influenced. Well, again, that's why I thought it was important to do this bonus episode. I found out that this fun little cult almost categorized as a B movie from the 80s that I, I love to watch actually is like everybody loves to watch and it has this huge impact on pop culture you may as well face the fact samantha the whole burden of civilization has fallen upon us it was also one of the uh it's noted as one of the first films first mainstream films to carry the pg-13 rating yeah so it must have come out right at a time yeah early 80s when they went through and changed all their ratings again because before that, of course, we just had, you know, the G and R and what else was there before that? Like <laughs> either G or R. Yeah, G, R and probably probably X for the uh, for the art house theater, you know, the, yeah, the stuff on yeah, 42nd yeah. Street and all that stuff. But Oh, PG, PG. Sorry. No, I said G, PG. I totally forgot about PG. <laughs> so, yep, you're right. I said X and just, yeah, that's where our mind went. We're like, what? There's something other than X? <laughs> there is. There's triple X. Um, 
No, I remember being a kid and watching um, Teen Wolf came out, I think, on VHS, and my mom and I rented it. And there's this scene in Teen Wolf where uh, they're at the party early on in the movie, and he uh, gets pushed in the closet with the one girl character or whatever, and they're all making out, and she, he rips her clothes because he's turning into the werewolf. Anyway, I just remember my mom kind of like wanting to cover my eyes and going, PG-13, this is R. You know, all the skin and drugs and partying and sex and shoot nowadays it's like pg-13 that was probably the r movies back in the day right yeah so i talked a little bit about um how this movie influenced buffy the vampire slayer well in buffy the vampire slayer pb herman played one of the vampires paul oh. paul rubin paul, paul rubens pb herman yep. yeah yeah he played uh probably one of the one of the, the greatest little vampire roles there alongside the um Rucker Howard. But anyway, so in Night of the Comet, towards the beginning, there's a waving clown in like the first shots of downtown that are all desolate and empty. And the waving clown is the same one that Pee Wee Herman locks his bike to in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. <laughs> I I knew that clown looked familiar, but I guess I couldn't put it. I don't know why I didn't put it together. I just introduced my daughter to Pee Wee's Big Adventure like a month or two ago. I love that film. Mm -hmm. So Night of the Comet, Pee Wee Herman, Large Marge. They're all, you know, and, and Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, all tied together. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> uh, just some of the other stuff that I found about being tied together. And I saw this, and I forgot to mention it when we covered the episode. I love when films do this, when films drop. You can call them Easter eggs. You can call them whatever you want. But there's... um. A couple scenes in the movie with posters and there's one when regina's boyfriend there is still early on the comet has already come and wiped everybody out they don't know it because they spent the night in the in the projection room he's going outside her boyfriend's going outside because he hears some banging on the door and thinks it's something who's supposed to be bringing him a film print and of course he goes out he gets killed by the the homeless comet zombie in the alley as he's opening the door on the door there's a poster that says red dust and that was a movie from 1932 so it was an actual actual film i've yet to watch it to see if it deals with the same subject matter or mm -hmm. anything but i love when films drop little things like that in there yeah little precursors of what is to come when we watch movies now i try to call those out i'm like oh that's pretty weird that he just said something like that, just kind of telling you something's coming. It's a neat little way for the director to give a nod to what influenced him or her, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You have that, that whole story with um, when Wes Craven did The Hills Have Eyes in 1975, I think it was. He has inside the trailer, there's a, a, poster, a movie poster of Jaws, and it's ripped in half. And it was him making a statement saying, Jaws isn't real horror, this is real horror. And then from that, Sam Raimi did the original Evil Dead as Ash Williams goes into the basement. In the corner, you see a poster of The Hills Have Eyes ripped in half. And it was almost uh, Sam. I think with Sam, it was the story is it was kind of him giving like a nod to Wes as an influence. But also, you know, it's kind of messing around going, well, The Hills Have Eyes is a real horror, Evil Dead is real horror. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So then in Nightmare at Elm Street Part 2, there are scenes from Evil Dead on TV. So then in Evil Dead 2, Sam Raimi has Freddy Krueger's glove hanging up in the tool shed, kind of in the corner. 
<laughs> and then, so it was just this little war back and forth. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So there was another poster that I, I, I saw this too. I forgot to mention it, but as uh, Regina comes out of the movie theater the morning after the comet, there's a poster for Death Race 2000 from 1975. It can be seen on the theater door. As I mentioned in the full episode where we talked about Night of the Comet, Mary Warnov, she appears in both films. Oh. So that was, yeah, that was cool too to toss up stuff the actors were involved with also. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's any books out there. Somebody should create one. There, there might be a book out there, you know, Easter eggs in horror movies. And kind of break down, because I'm sure, you know, you've just barely touched the tip of anything that has come out, you know? There's probably tons of movies, yeah. Well, and like they say in Star Wars, uh, E.T. can be seen in one of the films when, like, the meeting is going on. I'm sorry to all the Star Wars nerds. I don't know, like, what <laughs> what it's called, like, when the whole meeting... I love Star Wars, but yeah. You're talking my language. If you're talking Star Trek, I'd be like, I don't know really what you're talking about, but... Yeah, right, right. Yeah, but that would be fun just to kind of go through and just see a book and like, oh, wow, you know, and you can you can read about it and then go back and revisit it in the movies. Oh, that's kind of like the whole point of, the, of doing this bonus episode is hopefully we're talking about some stuff that people are like, oh, my God, really? And they want to go back and watch the film and have even more appreciation for it. But, yeah, that would be cool, a book like that, like that ad nauseum book you gave me. But it's just, just different things you can reference. Yeah. This movie is talked about in this movie, and, yeah. Yeah, and how they're all tied together. Yes. Can you imagine how big it would fucking be or how many volumes there would be for the the Marvel Universe? Yeah, they would have to break it down like the ad nauseum thing, like the years or something. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, 1990 to 1993, <laughs> you know? Right. It'd be like the whole encyclopedia set, you know? I, uh, I'm not a big superhero guy. My bonus daughter is, though. She lives in that, that Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're almost, we geek out, but in different realms, but close enough to where we can kind of have conversations about it sometimes. Man, she gets going talking about how they're all connected and in what order to watch them. And I'm just like looking at her with a blank face. Like, I don't even know what the fuck it is you're talking about. I, <laughs> I try to keep up. Have you, you've watched the Marvel movies though? Uh, here or there. I mean, um, I, some, I, mean, I, I haven't watched a lot of them though. Yeah. Yeah. I've watched them all. I like the Marvel movies, but yeah, I don't geek out at them like I would say, you know, Halloween or <laughs> any of the other horror movies. Well, and I don't know about you, but it's just ingrained in me. So I'm naturally, when it comes to Marvel, I'm drawing to I'm drawn to the horror side that I'm, I'm drawn to Blade and I'm drawn to Ghost Rider. And um, I kind of wanted to see Morbius just because it dealt with vampires and monsters and had a little blade tie in. So, and I think that's, that's why that, uh, what was the last big one that just came out? The multi, or I don't know, the Dr. Strange or. Oh, the Dr. Strange. So yeah. you have, you know, um, Bruce Campbell's in there cause Sam Raimi directed it with his pizza popper, Papa character. And I guess, uh, you know, the Delta was in there from evil dead. So kind of like what we're talking about, these cool little tie-ins. Well, I, uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed us verbally assaulting you with a ton of fun facts and useless knowledge. Hopefully one day, if you go on like say jeopardy and they ask you one of these questions, you're going to know it when a million dollars, maybe toss us 10%. That'd be pretty cool. And go, where did I hear that from? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Jason and Clint from the, I like it spooky horror podcast taught me that. Well, no, cause this is, this is fun to do though. Thanks for putting this together, Clint. It was great. But cause when we first, I don't know if people know, but when we, we record an episode, 
we'll watch the movie probably the night before, a couple nights before, and then mm-hmm. we talk about it. But we have our limited time to talk about it. And then right when we're done, you know, we probably think of 10 things like, shit, I should have, we should have talked about this. We should have talked about this. And when we're kind of just talking, we're kind of spitballing and throwing each other, like, convert, like talking about stuff. And we don't have any real structure. So it's good to kind of sit back and look at it, you know, a week or two later and be like, okay, let, let's put down everything that we wanted to talk about now. And I agree completely. And um, I'm not saying that, well, I don't know. It'd be, I don't know if, if we always necessarily have the time to do what we're doing right now, but I think it would be kind of cool in the future to, to do that. Um, I love the format of the, the main part of the show. And a lot of people seem to be receptive. You know, when we talk about why are we poor and um, you know, we cover bits from the news and what we're doing. Those are all great, but yeah, I think it would be fun to have some follow-up episodes just hitting some deeper facts, scratching beneath the surface. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, let us know what you think about this. Uh, should we make it a, a routine thing to, you know, revisit some of the, maybe the more popular ones? Well, he's, like you said before, we only cover the classics here on the I Like a Spooky Horror podcast. So <laughs> they're only they're all going to be popular, you know. Definitely. Thanks, uh, thanks for listening to us, letting us geek out here for a minute or, um, you know. And speaking of geeking out, how about we take a moment to hear from our podcast network? You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Don't forget to follow us on all of our socials. You know, I like it spooky. There's some underscores in some of them. Like I'm not, I, Brian's not here. I'm not the pro at this. I like it spooky horror podcast. Just search it. You can find us Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook. And now we're kind of branching out. We have a YouTube channel that we started a long time ago and it just kind of sat there a while. And Brian has kind of taken the initiative and made a few videos, put some on there. Um, talking about some of our collectibles or some of his collectibles it's fun check it out i like it spooky is a horror podcast on that also or just i like it spooky i think it's horror podcast also it i tell you what we need we need some more people to go um subscribe to that if you get a moment even if you uh even if you don't want to and you just ignore the subscription announcements you know notifications because right now it's you know we have like i don't know seven as we talk we have like seven (laughs) subscribers to that so it's um it doesn't have like uh it's not youtube.com slash i like it spooky it's youtube.com slash xyt7-42 whatever you know you need yeah. i think 100 subscribers to throw your name on there yeah so just we're trying to branch out um show you a little bit more about what we do who we are in video form so this is going to be a fun new ride for us something something a little bit different to challenge us yeah, and in case you haven't heard it, now you're going to have to see it, that we are nothing but a bunch of nerds, but the spooky cool kind. Hell yeah. All right, everyone. Y'all take care. Thanks for listening. Bye.
Don't forget, I'm not crazy. I just don't give a fuck. <laughs> Hey, what's wrong with you, man? Show some fucking respect for the dead, will ya?